Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from the KKXX Studios, Life Radio, Chico 104.5 and AM 930. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, but I have been a photographer for over 30 years. And if a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you could say I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as the program, What the Cross Means to Me by Harvest House Publishers. Each week we read one of the essays and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. This week's essay is Blood-Bought Grace by T.M. Moore, who was a theologian, poet, and principal of the Fellowship of Albi, a spiritual fellowship in the Celtic Christian tradition. As the principal of the Fellowship of Albi, T.M. and his wife Susie have collaborated on more than 30 books over the past 40 years of ministry. And with that, let's begin with the essay, Blood Bought Grace. Around the wretched blood-bathed tree, a crowd of angry Mockers taunts the battered king of love. Their raw reproaches form a loud cacophony of scorn and bite and sting in voices, but all to no avail. Their doom as sure as my forgiveness, as the trail of blood flows to the earth. A garden tomb awaits its unintentioned guest. And I will be among the ones that seal that room as though it were the end of that. Now by the holy place, divine archangels stand to rend the separating curtain high, from high to low, and to open for every man and woman, even such as I, the place of glory and the blessed promised land. Where I behold the risen Savior's face and bow and bask within his blood-bought wrath. That ends the essay, Blood-Bought Grace, by T.M. Moore and included in the book, What the Cross Means to Me. There is a poem included with this essay by Augustus M. Toplad, which says, Nothing in my hand I bring, 
simply to thy cross I cling. The photo accompanying this essay is the refinement. The cross image, the refinement, is an image from the early days of capturing the cross collection. It is a horizontal composition, which is unique for me as over 95% of my cross images are vertical. But I only know that this shot early on in my capturing the cross because I'm shooting directly into the sun and the landscape and the cross are in deep silhouette. The ground takes up only about 5% of the lower part of the image and the cross gets to only as high as about 40% of the lower part of the image. The rest of the image is full of clouds with sun rays breaking through and fanning out across the entire image. The entire bottom of the image is the silhouette of the grass, and when you see a sea of grass, you know that it was early on in my capturing of the cross days. Now, it's interesting because as I'm shooting into the sun, the colors seem to be like a black and white image, but there is a tint of amber in the sun rays. It's a very unique image. Why the title of the refinement? Well, to me, I interpret the image as elicit, eliciting a type of purgation or purification into the state of being saved. It can be defined as the act of purifying, like separating substances from all extraneous matter, you know, a clearing of dross, sentiment, or impurities, as in the purification of metals or liquors. In addition to actions and manners, it is to purify from what is gross, clownish, or vulgar, to polish or to make elegant. In Zechariah 13, it says, I will bring them through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined. In this image, the setting sun is breaking through the clearing storm clouds and to me, there is a daily opportunity with the passing of each day, with the passing of each sunset, to be cleansed, purified, and refined. Today, the scripture I chose for this image is Daniel eleven, thirty-five, which says, Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end it will still come at the appointed time. Now getting back to the essay, which causes us to look and to really ponder what Jesus went through to become our Savior. A series of events, when viewed comprehensively, leads me to believe that Jesus died a death worse or more painful or more inhumane than 99% of the human race. And even if you do not believe in the divine nature of Jesus, if you are honest, you will have to agree that the man known as Jesus died a death more horrific than most of the humans. This essay starts off referring to those who actually witnessed Jesus make the ultimate sacrifice for them and for all of us. Some accounts show a very sanitized version of Jesus up on that cross. Some show 
blood from the crowns or his knees, his hands, his feet, and where the spear pierced the side. But the Bible tells of a much more gruesome scene. And I can sympathize because as no matter how accurate an artist tries to be, he could never adequately recreate how Jesus looked on the cross. And if they did, I believe the art would be unsellable. Why? It says in Isaiah 52.14 that just as there were many who were appalled looking at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond any human likeness. In another translation it says, he no longer looked like a human man. It means that you would not be able to recognize him as ever being a human, or that he is a human. Let that sink in a bit. Jesus was tortured and beaten beyond recognition. Selah. With this picture, perspective, and paradigm in mind, let us join T.M. Moore in pondering who was actually at Golgotha and witnessed Jesus die. Well, sometimes the most obvious are the easiest to forget, the thieves. Some call them the two criminals. It is my opinion that they were not as beaten and tortured as Jesus were, but they were dying. Who else do we see gazing on the dying Jesus? There were many other women, a large number of people who followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Luke twenty three twenty seven, And later in verse 49, it says, But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. Now John also tells us that there were other disciples there, but it seems that most were standing in stunned disbelief as nothing is reported to have been said by them. However, John comments on his own presence referring to and in doing so that he may record Christ's committal of his mother, Christ's mother, to his care, to John's care. When Jesus, this is in John nineteen twenty six to 27, it says, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. And Tia Moore was not really focusing on the greater cloud of witnesses, but focusing on the antagonist at the cross that day. The ones that were closest to him, was, of course, was the bad thief. And we know the bad thief cursed and mocked Jesus. In Luke twenty three thirty seven, he says, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The bad thief doesn't acknowledge his guilt or the fact that he deserves death. He wants to be taken down from the cross so that he can go on living life as he had been, as a criminal. Therefore, he doesn't receive paradise. But the bad thief isn't the only one who deserves death. Every one of us has sinned and thus deserves eternal separation from God. 
This, I think, is the theme of this essay. But in his mercy, God became man to begin to set things right. We just have to follow in the footsteps of the good thief, acknowledge our sinfulness, and turn to Jesus. Sometimes, like the bad thief, we wish to be taken down from our cross, frustrated with what we are suffering. Like the bad thief, sometimes we doubt, wondering, why doesn't he just remove this suffering? But in this life, being taken down from the cross is not the answer. Jesus endured it. The good thief endured it. St. Peter, upside down, endured it. So we too need to endure it, knowing that we deserve it. Worse. And if we persevere, we can place our hope in something greater than merely being freed from suffering. We can look forward to receiving the fullness of the kingdom of heaven in our hearts here on earth and being with God forever in paradise. That said, I do not think Moore was talking about the bad thief. As he started the essay with, Around the wretched blood-bathed cross, a crowd of angry mockers taunted and bat the, the battered king of love. He meant, I believe, the religious leaders, the administrators of the entire society, the ones who twisted the whole process to ensure the Romans would crucify Jesus. This perspective provides fresh insight as to why the religious leaders, especially the Pharisees, would accept nothing less than a crucifixion. Pilate offered many alternatives to crucifixion. And I've wondered why the Jewish leaders would not be willing to negotiate this point. But the religious leaders wanted the following, the way, the followers of Jesus shut down. Meaning they, the disciples, who had the ability to share the gospel message firsthand from Christ, had to be neutralized. The leaders knew that if this if, if the teacher of this cult, the top of the cult, Jesus Christ, would be, would be stigmatized through crucifixion, then no one would want to be associated with any of them. The disciples and converts would be shamed and stigmatized through the association with the crucified Jesus. As Caiaphas told Peter, Pilate, our law forbids capital punishment when Pilate asked, why don't they just deal with Jesus their way? But we know that's not true because Hebrew law allows for stoning in certain circumstances. In fact, they tried it on Jesus once, or they began trying, but Jesus slipped out of their presence. And there was many ways that they could have dealt with Jesus, but this was as much a political as it was a commercial motivation. As the followers of Christ were growing being baptized and forgiven, some through John the Baptist, less people needed the, the traditional Jewish priests. And the Hebrew people were, in this current religious system, had to purchase sacrifice. Lambs, goats, pair of doves. But after the movement of Jesus kept growing, 
it coincided with a decrease in their quote-unquote customers. The priest class not only made a lot of money in this system, but had an endless supply of free food. And yet the followers of Jesus kept growing. The arrival of Jesus in what we call Palm Sunday, in which the Bible says the entire city turned out to cheer and praise Jesus, took the situation into a final straw phase for the Pharisees. They not only had wanted Jesus gone, but they wanted a stigma associated with Jesus, such that anyone following the teachings of Jesus would also be stigmatized across society and their culture. Now I, I feel that I understand why the religious leaders would accept nothing less than a crucifixion and a political assassination, character assassination, and a political assassination of Jesus. Moore's point is that the Jewish leaders sneered at him during the crucifixion. They said different versions of, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Moore continues, their raw reproaches form a loud cacophony of scorn and bite and sting in their voices, strongly like my own. Now, since the Romans were the ones that the religious leaders used to kill Jesus, there were Romans there at the cross, and the evangelists speak of their presence of soldiers. Many of them were mocking Jesus as well. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Moore's essay touched on this as it continues. A troop of soldiers gambles for the only thing he owns, and I am in that grisly group. He thirsts. One races in a gate like my own to thrust upon his pained, parched lips a soup compromised of bitter herbs and bitter wine. Not any of the Jews or Romans or various Gentiles or anybody at all. T.M. Moore is identifying with Himself, not just as a victim, but as the protagonizer. Moore takes us throughout the entire day by describing how the whole creation groans. In studying for these episodes, I learned that the process of a crucifixion was a cultural and societal shame. It brought not only shame to the one being executed, but a widespread stigma to friends and families. It was like being dropped down a peg or two in the ruling class system, right? The class system we're focused on here is that the crucified were being perceived as being cursed by God. And it really made me wonder, was Jesus Christ cursed? The Bible says yes. And it may not be known to some, but this is the main theme of the entire biblical story from, of the human condition, from the Garden of Eden and up to Calvary. Let me take a step back and see if we really understand this. God had to curse and break the right relationship with his beloved and only son to restore the right relationship with mankind. Yes! And it's why Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. God had to, because of the sins of Adam and Eve, 
break his own right relationship with them, cursing them, toil and sweat over the fields for the man, Adam, and the woman, Eve, there was to be pain of childbearing as well as enmity with the serpent. Then he exiled them from the Garden of Eden. To reverse the status, God the Father had to curse and exile his own son, Jesus, who was sinless, innocent, and holy. Giving Jesus up to the worst execution by the Romans that could be inflicted on a human, but the physical aspects to the torturous process of a crucifixion is nothing, in my opinion, compared to the utter horror, agony, and anguish of having all the sins of man across the span of history and into the future until the rapture, all of the most vile, disgusting, foul, nasty, unpleasant, horrid, dreadful, abominable, offensive, odious, unsavory, repulsive, repelling, wicked, evil, heinous, villainous, diabolical, fiendish, vicious, murderous, barbaric, cruel, dark, rotten, nefarious, monstrous, spiteful, and hurtful actions ever committed was placed on and in Jesus. It is simply unimaginable, but it makes sense in light of this new paradigm. Moore said that this caused an outpouring of eternal wrath, which was an actual part of the actual plan. And I just, the plan that I just mentioned, for me to say I understand it completely would be disingenuous. All I really know is that the Bible tells us that God cannot dwell with sin. God is holy and can't cohabitate with sin. So God had to decouple from his own son to allow all the sin of the world to dwell with Jesus. And we know this to be the case when it was reported that Jesus cried out and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wow. So even those people who feel God has abandoned them, Jesus can say he knows because it actually happened to him. And more than any other human, because Jesus the Son was closest to God the Father than more than any other human that has ever lived from beginning of creation. Meaning the absolute anguish of being abandoned and then having the sin of the world placed on him is unfathomable. So maybe it took the outpouring, the overflowing of God's wrath into and through Jesus to wash off or refine, like the name of the image for this essay, to refine Jesus to purify his soul as he descended into the realm of Lucifer. We are not told this implicitly, but it infers that it was needed for Jesus to achieve his covert mission. More touches on this in the essay when he says, Meanwhile, behind the veil that shades the spirit realm, the demons roll and tremble, stumbling with defeat. They wail and shriek but to no avail. Their doom as sure as my forgiveness. As the trail of blood flows to the earth, the garden tombs awaits its unintentional guest, and I will be among the ones that seal that room as though that was the end of that. But as the body of Jesus was laid in the tomb, his spirit was active, 
and there was much more going on behind the dimensions, behind the one more can imagine himself in. And he touches on that by saying, Now, but the holy place, the vine archangels stand to rend the separating curtain, high to low, and open up for every man and woman, even such as I, the place of glory in the blessed promised land. This is the source of your faith, similar to the point hillside and flows down to a creek and then eventually into a mighty river. The whole story of the divine Jesus allowing himself to be crucified, cursed, and abandoned only to know that the hidden plant was to retrieve the dominion of this earth. Our hope is forged as Jesus declares the mission accomplished. Keys to death, hell, and the grave. The power that allows us to be saved today. We can rest in the ability of the outpouring of the blood of Jesus to overcome the outpouring of wrath for the sin we deserve. To be refined into a holy status and a right relationship with God the Father. To allow God's perfect peace while we live out our days on earth but also hope in an eternal life, an afterlife with the Trinity. As T.M. Moore put it in the last lines of his essay, where I behold the Savior's face and bowed bask within his blood-bought grace. And as Head Hinson said in last week's episode, Jesus did it all to offer you grace. Blood-bought grace. Now, if you are a Christian, have you been living in this perspective? If not, I suggest you meditate on the paradigm of the cross. Why? Because it removes all possible fear, doubt, and insecurity. It allows you to choose God's will without overthinking it, knowing that the truth of the gospel is whatever worst case result of any scenario is really the best case outcome for us. God's children. Go and live in that perspective today. And if you have not accepted the incredible sacrifice made for you by Jesus, then I suggest you contemplate what he did for you. Read the crucifixion accounts of the Bible, because if you do, I am confident that you will thank him for his sacrifice and will ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and ask him to dwell inside the cleaned out and healed portion of your heart today. And with that, go in grace, and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program heard every week here on KKXX Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed in this week's essay, along with my other versepirations, then check out Magi Cross on Instagram. And if your church, youth group, or school would like to learn how to fundraise through the Magi Cross products, hear other cross podcasts, or read further meditative musings on the cross through my blog, then log on to magicross.com. That is M-A-J-I-C-R-O-S-S dot com. <laughs>